Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? On this episode, we are honored to welcome Mr. Jeff Goodman. Jeff was the Republican nominee for the state treasurer position in 2016. He came very, very close to winning by 52,000 votes. That's correct. 52,000 more, and I would be state treasurer now. Wow. Gosh darn. I know. So uh, anyway, welcome to the podcast. So Jeff, why don't you uh, start out tell us a little bit about your, your background and uh, why you decided to run for treasurer in 2016. Thank you for the opportunity. I decided to run for treasurer in 2016. Ted Wheeler was term limited out, and I knew what I'd been able to accomplish with the team on my two years, six years, I'm sorry, of service on the Lake Oswego City Council. And all of my background in my life between my education, my jobs, had ultimately prepared me to serve as state treasurer of Oregon. And Just nobody, as a, a quick question, you got your your master's degree from a school in the greatest state in the union, is that correct? You went to University of Pennsylvania? I was at the uh, Wharton School of Business for my graduate degree and my MBA, yes. That's, yes. Uh, that's where Trump went, isn't it? That is where Trump went. <laughs> <laughs> so, one for two, one of two for Wharton there. <laughs> well, that's, I'm from Pittsburgh Trump myself. As a, Pittsburgh's a, a great city, a lot of fine universities. Uh, Carnegie Mellon in particular. That's where I went for grad school. And, but I should note, President Trump is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, but his degree was in the undergraduate school, and mine was the graduate school. Was it? Oh, I thought he went to Wharton. I thought it, he was they a, had, there's an undergraduate school. You can also oh, there under yeah. Wharton. Okay. Yes. All right. See, well, I went I to the prestigious University of Oregon for my MBA. And, You're a duck. Uh, I am a duck. Yeah. Well a done. giant flag back up there <laughs> in the room there. There is. The listeners can't see that, so... Go Beavs. <laughs> Married a beaver. I got to say that every episode contractually right. obligated. Well, let's get back to Jeff. Jeff, so you went to Wharton. I was looking at your bio a little bit ago. You were a financial analyst for a while, controller, uh, Lake Oswego city councilor. What What am I missing? Got it right. Financial analyst at the Heister Company, manufacturer of lift trucks here at their corporate office uh, in Portland. I made a very conscious decision after finishing up my grad school education that I wanted to return to Oregon. Um, second generation here. My mother was born here and grew up here, lived here all of her life, and then went to was the controller for a startup company, and then went ultimately after that was the treasurer for another couple of subsidiaries of Northwest Natural Gas, and then for the last twenty plus years I've been out on my own. Well, you're in good company. I'm a financial analyst right now, and Nick, I don't know, works at a bank or something. <laughs> I'm an MBA. I'm, I'm smart, too. <laughs> no question about that. Yeah, both, both of you are. Well, thank you. Thank you. So next question, just for the listeners, and what exactly does a, is a treasurer for a state of Oregon, like what, what are the responsibilities? Because the legislature comes up with a budget. Is that correct? That is correct. So is the treasurer, it, do you manage the budget that's already been proposed by the legislature? Or no, you bet. There's the there's a vision that the treasurer of Oregon, if people even know that there is a treasurer in Oregon, but it's not a particularly well known position, that they are someone with the green eye shades counting up the money. <laughs> right. uh, that is not accurate. <laughs> the treasurer has a couple of big responsibilities. Uh, one, they serve on the state land board, which has responsibility for all the state owned lands. And we, there's been lots of conversations about the Elliott State Forest in particular, and. The treasurer is one of the three people, secretary of state and the governor, 
who serve on that board. And then the biggest one where the biggest dollars are uh, is responsibility for the investments of the funds for the Public Employee Retirement System, otherwise known as PERS. And there's an investment team, uh, about 120 people there overseeing those investments, which total about $72 billion. They also serve, the third element is uh, the Treasurer's Office for Oregon serves as the bank for a lot of the local governments, counties, and other government districts in the state so that they get a little bit extra money, a little bit extra earnings on the money that they have by consolidating it through the state office. It's a big job, and mm-hmm. you're 6'6 six, six or something like that? You're a big man ready for it, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's 6'5, but who's six counting? Five, yeah. Yeah. Who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> right. So one more quick question. Do you have any aspirations to maybe give it a go again, try out for, for treasure again and in the future? I do. Who knows where my life will be in 2020, but I came so very close last time with a very small amount of resources, and the responsibility was mine for not raising more money, but was outspent about four and a half to one and came within 52,000 votes of winning. I said at the time I thought I was better qualified. I still believe that. And we'll see where I am in the next several months, but I'm thinking a lot about having a rematch in 2020 with our current treasurer, Tobias Reed. Can I ask just because I think it would get into the topic that we're uh, planning to discuss for the for the for the rest of this podcast. Do you think a race like state treasurer would be easier for a Republican to win in historically blue Oregon because there's a lot it's a lot less political, I suppose, for lack of a better term? Or do you think it'd be more difficult because you wouldn't have the name recognition that, say, Newt Bueller or Bud Pierce does somebody at Mm -hmm. the top of the ticket? I think the treasurer's position is a position that first and foremost requires a strong background in finance and investing. Okay. One and one is two. There's no argument about that. You can have other arguments in politics in the state about it, but the, you want a, a stronger technical background uh, in the treasurer's role. You have a great investment team. John Smurgeon heads that up on the investment side uh, in this treasurer's office, and he's very, very capable, and the state's fortunate to have him. But the treasurer needs to understand all the things that are going on when it comes to investing. When you talk about the efficient frontier or duration, uh, which I won't bore you with the details of that, (laughs) uh, but you need to understand that. So when the language is going on uh, and the discussions are going on, you can be an active participant in that discussion. That's a technical skill rather than a political skill. Okay. And you have, I obviously, as controller for a number of years for a number of different companies, mm-hmm. startups, uh, your work in, in Lake Oswego, uh, you've, you've never served as a, as a state legislator, a state senator, a state representative, but you obviously, you've got that hard technical component to, to do the job and to do it well then. No question about it. And I can give some examples of how I was able to bring my educational background, my experience in work background, and my volunteer background over the years. Let me give one example. While I was serving on the city council, the council collectively had been trying for a number of years to replace and upgrade a number of its physical buildings, the infrastructure in particular, and also getting focused on roads, which were deteriorating. Because I have a good understanding of financial matters, I'd also served on the budget committee for the city, I was able to put together a multi-pronged approach for providing the funding for replacing of the operations and maintenance center of the city without asking the residents for an additional dime. And I did that because I understood the budget, 
had a good working relationship with the staff uh, for the city of Lake Oswego. We could sit down, go over this, debate this, and came up with a proposal that provided not only the estimated cost, but also had a reserve built in in case when it went forward, the cost came in more. That was the first part. The second part was something I spent a lot of time doing was writing columns in the local paper. Okay. Because I believe one of the primary roles of an elected official is to inform and persuade, not the people who agree with you already. Okay. I mean, it's great. We being, love you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love, I love hearing that. Uh, but I mean, being told I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread is really nice, but that's not necessarily helpful for trying to working an issue. Mm-hmm. I want to talk with people who I disagree with to one, try and inform and persuade them to my view. Or if I'm wrong, I'll change my mind. But I would write these columns as an example going back with the replacement of the operations and maintenance facility that was done without asking the residents for an additional dime. Mm. I would write columns that got published which would explain to the residents of the city, here's how we're doing it. Here are the multiple sources of the funding. Here's the probability that those dollars are going to be available to do it. Here's the total. Here's the reserve. Inform and persuade. And that's very important. That's something an elected official needs to do on and acknowledge when they do things right, when they do things uh, that didn't go as well. Did the same thing because I was able to be, take the lead, again, being part of a team, but we're replacing our city hall and police station, again, without asking the residents for an additional dime. Hmm. Because to me, taxes are necessary. They are necessary. But they ought to be the last thing that we ask for to try and fund the things that all of us ask to whether we want in our state. And that's my general approach to thing. I think we've talked about that a little bit in, in this podcast in prior episodes that we as rational Republicans are not anti-tax. We're not anarchists. We just want the money that we're already giving to the government to go to the best cause and keep it limited. Mm-hmm. All yeah. the good government we can afford. Exactly. All the good government we can afford. Well, and you have an ex- a terrific example in that. And we're not, I haven't been hearing much about it. Although it was it was the audit report that came out of the Secretary of State's office under Dennis Richardson's um, leadership as Secretary mm-hmm. of State on the purchasing practices of the state as a whole hmm. and identified a series of steps that could be taken that had the potential of saving tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars on an annual basis. Wow. Better practices were done in purchasing. Since that report came out, I'm sure the different departments of the state are working on trying to implement it, but I'm not hearing anything about that. That's low-hanging fruit because mm-hmm. these are things we're already doing. We're just trying to make it better practice, mm-hmm. and you save money in do it, doing it. We had to be hearing more about that, and we've heard nothing. So my assumption is it's going forward, but I may be mistaken on that. Tobias, if you're listening, let's get some columns going, buddy. <laughs> let's do it. Pen to paper. Did that just recently. I had a terrific article published. Uh, I think it was a terrific article, but then again, I wrote it, so I better think it's terrific. (laughs) But I submitted it to the uh, Portland Tribune talking about the challenges of PERS and what is the purpose of PERS and what are we trying to accomplish with it. And I received several compliments from people about the quality and the quality of the argument that I made. Excellent. Very fun. Well, that's, we had Alan on for a podcast and uh, Purse has Allie. come up in, yeah. I don't, you know, six or eight other episodes that we've done. It's definitely, it's, it is the eight billion pound elephant in the room for any other public policy discussion here in Oregon. But it's definitely, there's no good way to, you know, give a 30 second summary of like, Hey, here's what's going on and here's why it's a problem. Here's a clear way to fix it. If you just mm-hmm. moved for me, it's, it's just a very, 
complicated seeping it just touches everything and it's just it's a it's a pain (laughs) voters don't have the time or the attention span for the most part to to really care about it so to paraphrase winston churchill on that winston churchill once described and i'm i'm getting it wrong but bear (laughs) with me he once described russia as a riddle surrounded by a mystery wrapped in an enigma Mm -hmm. (laughs) the same could be applied to pers and compounded It's a very, very complex Mm -hmm. system. Articles that I've read indicate that it's probably, if not the most complex, one of the top two or three most complex retirement systems that uh, anywhere in the country. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. We got to find what other state tops us and get those guys on here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Well, so, so that actually, I asked the question because that kind of leads into the topic that we had uh, dragooned you in here to discuss because you've come closer to winning here in Oregon as a Republican than really, I, I mean, Dennis actually did win statewide, but after that, mm-hmm. it's probably you have come closer than anybody in the last 20 years or something. I don't you know, even if, know. If Bueller had hired better staff, I <laughs> <Yeah>. mean, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, dude, you, you made a bad call bringing me on the team. <laughs> I, I did come very close. Uh, Newt I, Bueller lost, I think, by about. I don't remember what the percentage was. I think it was 6.2%. But 6.2%. Chris Dudley, when he ran for governor in 2010, mm-hmm. I think also lost by about the same percentage that I did. And if I remember correctly, his budget was about 7 or $8 million. Is that right? Wow. And then, as you said, Dennis Richardson won. Uh, I think his budget was about $1.8 to $2 million. And I mean, this is public information. I think my total budget was about 175000 Wow. So on a dollar per vote, yeah, I was going to say, was bank really effective. Yeah. <laughs> Just right there, you're yeah. qualified to yeah. do this job. <laughs> but so we've we, we're we're at a loss. James and I spin our wheels, you know, every two weeks and come up with a new episode, and people listen to it. Which thanks, listeners, but we haven't come up with a good answer as to how how to get Republicans in the door and how to kind of get folks to to work their way up the ladders and. You would certainly be, uh, as a statewide office holder, that, like that's that's pretty high up. That's that's mm-hmm. a lot of responsibility for a Republican that we haven't had for a number of years. It is, and I've got some thoughts on how Republicans can get elected in Oregon on a statewide basis and also locally. I mean, when you're talking state senator or state representative, the issues are much more local mm-hmm. as well as participating in the state level. But we cannot simply be a party of no. If that's the only thing we talk about is no, people want to know what we're for. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be against certain things, but you want to know what you're for. Just as an example, uh, one of the big topics that's received a lot of discussion and is continuing to receive a lot of discussion in the state is about health care coverage. And my experience has been is that when you talk with people, the single biggest thing that scares them the most, it's not the regular checkups or the you – know, I've got the flu or something like that. It's the catastrophic event, which financially could devastate them. Mm-hmm. So we as, as Republicans and for the, ought to be focusing on what kind of policies do we bring forth so that people don't have that, in effect, terror of what happens with a catastrophic coverage, if something happens catastrophically to them, and how do we help them provide that kind of coverage for their medical expenses at a reasonable cost? Mm-hmm. That's one example. Uh, another example is, you know, there's been lots of talk about the the Green Deal, New Green Deal. And Senator Benz from Eastern Oregon also had served in the state legislature, 
brought forward an alternative plan to the current cap and trade where it was a, a carbon tax. And that's an example of providing an alternative, acknowledging the importance of the environment to all Oregonians, but saying here's a different way of going about accomplishing the goal. Another example, and you're seeing this now, is you want to have the tax code in Oregon being fair. I'm not talking nationally. That's a whole separate issue that I'm not qualified to speak to tax code nationally and what Congress does or doesn't do with it. But people want to, I believe that people want to know that the Oregon tax code is fair. There's not these, all these little carve-outs for those who have the power to be able to get a carve-out in Salem. Mm -hmm. I, I think people resent that and they want to know you're going to be saying, wait, I understand paying taxes, but treat everybody fairly. Mm -hmm. You can have the argument about what's fair, but don't give X sector or X group their little benefit. That's what people, I think, resent a lot. And we have an opportunity, I think, as Republicans, and also for Democrats and independents and non-affiliated to say, no, we want it to be fair. And that's with HB 2020 that's going through right now, or I, well, has passed the House. And as we speak, the, the senators are not in the state of Oregon. There were two huge companies here in Portland that are just, that are exempted from it, essentially. And HB 2020 is the cap and trade bill that's going through. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. And to, uh, to your exact point, that's, However you choose to define the word fair, and that's going to be different for Republicans and Democrats and rich and poor and whatever, but I don't think anybody would say that it's fair that if we're going to pass this massive tax hike that two very large employers get to get themselves out of it. And you know the reason they did that is because they were getting fought. It's those two big employers were fighting against this bill, and so in order to get their support, they then carved out a little portion for them, so they're so they're exempt. So we're all yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. It's all just the wheeling and dealing that that makes things. Unfair. Which leads to another point for me, which is very important. It's number one: treat people as adults. Acknowledge that they're intelligent. That if you talk with them and go over things, that they're an adult, not a child. And secondly, acknowledge that the other side, on whatever the issue is, that their view has merit. Yeah. I would say, assuming positive intent, whenever you're debating someone, whether in a political standpoint or, or otherwise, when I'm disagreeing with someone, if I automatically assume that you want the best thing and I want the best thing, we just have different views of getting there. It changes your whole, your whole outlook. I feel like we as, as a country have gotten to the point where we're just pointing fingers at each other and saying, Oh, the other side wants to destroy America. Well, no, they don't. They want what's best for America. They just have bad ideas about how to get there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that, that will happen sometimes. Yep. But no, and that's and I think that there's merit to a lot of that stuff. There's definitely a a path forward for us. Um, out of curiosity, do you think Senator Bence's proposal would have gotten anywhere if the Republicans were not in the super minority? Do you think that would have been enough leverage to kind of get us as a party to the table and make this bill, this 2020 going through, either less extreme or go wholeheartedly into into his proposal? I will do you the courtesy of candor by saying, I don't know. I think so. But when you're not in the middle of the hurricane with the legislature in session going over things, it's it's hard to judge that. I think that there was a there has been a lot of momentum built over the last decade behind the current proposal of the cap-and-trade, Measure 2020, that 
because of that momentum that's been built behind it uh, and the deal-making that's going on to have it ultimately get across the finish line uh, in, from the legislature's perspective, that even with the merits of the ideas that you know Senator Benz brought, uh, it may not have been heard anyway. I personally, I like the idea. I think that the revenue-neutral carbon tax is a more effective means of accomplishing the goal with respect mm-hmm. to carbon and uh, in the... Uh, economy and for the planet. Uh, and he was very, he was laid out a four point plan actually in a column in the Oregonian where he identified it was revenue neutral, carbon tax, uh, use the market to take advantage of, use the market mechanisms to get carbon reduction uh, in the state. One of the other things that I think we need to do as a Republican party to be more relevant, this goes to that a little bit, is we need to be more credible. And I mentioned this the last time we had this discussion, but I was watching on Facebook and saw someone posted a satirical article as fact without checking. And it got shared a dozen times before someone called her out and said, actually, that's the onion and it's not a real thing. (laughs) Oops. Right. And like, well, climate change is another thing. And I guess there's still some debate to be had on this. But my personal view is, yes, humans are causing global warming, climate change, and we do need to do something about it. And I believe that the science overwhelmingly backs that. But we as Republicans have become the head in the sand party when it comes to climate change. Then the final thing is vaccines, which we talked about in our last episode. We have become the anti-vax party, which is completely absurd. I'm not sure how we have fallen this far. Maybe because the Democrats are are pro-vaccine and pro-mandatory vaccine, we have to go the opposite direction and become anti-vaccine. But I just think that's completely wrongheaded. Well, although I, I texted you earlier, just, just today, this I, June 20th, I think is when we're recording this. Yep. There was a Marion Williamson, one of the women who was running for president on the Democratic side, gave a speech today in which she said mandatory vaccines are Orwellian. And somebody pointed out on Twitter, because Twitter is where people go to be snarky and trolls, and I I love it. I'm about it. Somebody pointed out that Orwell died of a disease that could have been cured by a vaccine. And so her saying something like a vaccine is Orwellian is just uh, the irony was clearly not lost on that writer or that me or or any of our listeners now who are listening to this. But yeah, but we do get stuck in the... We get stuck in the mud as this, this, you have to be a real conservative. And I can't tell you how many people, I, you know, letters and emails and stuff that I saw that, you know, were upset with Newt because he wasn't a real conservative because he was what you could say moderate on, on some issues. But I think held a position that the majority of Oregonians held A and B, more importantly, I think held the right position, held the position that would allow him to be the most effective person in his job. And that made no never mind to some people in our party who were just, they're very by the book and you have to check every single one of these things or you're a rhino. And that's... Well, here's the thing about that. I've mentioned before on the podcast, one of the things that got sort of the genesis of this podcast was looking at the 2018 election data. And as much as some of those far-right conservatives will complain about Newt being a rhino or being not a true conservative, they still came out and voted for him. Still voted. They did. There were, I mean, there will be anecdotal evidence of people who decided not to vote for Newt. But if you look at the numbers, overwhelmingly, Republicans voted party line for the governor. So, you know, we are the rational Republican. We have our logo has split red and blue. 
the whole point is reaching across the aisle and trying to reach out to some of these more moderate voters because honestly, the, those on the right, they will vote for a moderate candidate. They're not going to like it, but they will vote that way. And if we can reach out to the middle and win some of those NAVs or maybe right-leaning Democrats, I think that's how we win in Oregon. Well, and I, so that, that raises the question then with your time as, uh, as a Lake Oswego city councilor and your efforts to engage the public a little bit more and your, you know, putting columns together and put, you know, putting writing out there. Did you find that that would be helpful in potentially either winning over the votes of maybe optimistically or at least ameliorating the concerns of Democrats, but also some of the more strident, stringent, hard right conservatives that you would come across? I engaged everybody in conversation because there's always areas you can find of commonality. And a phrase that I just read recently, and I wrote it down and brought it with me that I'll repeat if I might, it goes that you know, uh, denigrating people until they vote for you lacks a certain strategic plausibility. Okay. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's, I wish I wrote it myself. I didn't. <laughs> but it, it's also true. I mean, you denigrating people, and it also says that if they don't vote for you, you're suggesting that they don't deserve you. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. That's not true. So mm-hmm. inform and persuade. And if ultimately you disagree, so be it. But by having that conversation of inform and uh, persuade, you start drilling down to exactly where are the core differences of judgment. Mm-hmm. And once you get to that point, then you can start to see, okay, where do we go from here? And another part, and I'm a very big believer in this, I don't know who originally made the statement, but my 80% friend is not my 20% enemy. And on any particular issue, you don't burn a bridge because your opponent on one issue is going to be, has the potential or the likelihood of being your ally on the next. Mm-hmm. So that's why you always work the issue. And like I said before, assume positive intent. Assume that the person you're speaking with has everyone's best interest in mind and that they, you may disagree on how to get there, but when you have the mindset of we're all looking for the best solution, I feel like you don't get into these battles quite as much and you don't burn those bridges because you try to see things from a commonality and if you make a mistake, acknowledge it. Don't deny it. If, if the if you were uh, opposed to a policy and went through, and it turns out the policy was fine, you say, hey, I made a mistake. I should have supported the policy. And then you move on. But you concentrate on policies to improve people's lives. We That's make what mistakes we be all on about. this podcast all the time. <laughs> yeah. and we, are, we are professional mistake makers. Fortunately, I can edit them out in post. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> So I, so what do you think if there are folks who are listening to this who lean to the right and who maybe, you know, haven't yet voted, voted, haven't yet donated, haven't yet really gotten engaged with the process because they moved here, they grew up here, and they see how bleak of a landscape it is for anybody with an R by their name. What do you think would be... I believe that you're referring to the Scarlet R. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> that, that's all. Yes. Topic for a different podcast. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That'll be a little bit more PG-13 rated than this okay. one. <laughs> but the, what, what is a, what's a good We all read that novel step? in high school. Yes. We did. I, we did, actually. Yes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I think it was 11th grade for me. And Something I was just like, like that. yeah, that's, oh man. A long time ago. Tough to read. Tough to read. Um, but, but what's a good first step for that person? For him or herself to say, I don't know how to get to the point where I can be an effective city councilor, state legislator, 
state treasurer, after you've completed your wonderful terms, hopefully, secretary of state, mm-hmm. governor, congressperson, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever that person's end goal is, what's a good first step to get from here to there? There are lots of boards and commissions within every city, every county, uh, and the state where people can serve on a volunteer basis to learn about a particular topic that they have an interest in or that they have knowledge in. Get appointed to those. There's also lots of local boards that you are elected to, whether it's the local fire district or the local educational district. And oftentimes there's nobody running for those offices. And you you get the ballot in the mail and you look there, but there's nobody running. So whoever got five names written in is elected. That's the person. That's the mm. person. When you And when you get elected and you start to serve, you work, serve with other people and you start to see how the process works and how to make things better. That's the best first step. Absolutely. And that's, I, I myself sit, uh, I volunteer with a Multnomah County Citizens Budget Advisory Committee on mm-hmm. the advice of my mother-in-law. And she had, you know, she said, this is, if you like, if you like public policy, this is a great way to, to figure things out. And it's, it's very well known in that room that I'm a Republican and I would assume I'm probably the only one, but there's 10 or 12 people who are willing to give two Wednesday nights a month for every month from November till March or April or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you get really into the, into the minutia of what the budget for the county looks like and for specifically what that particular arm of the county and the services they're trying to provide and whatever. And it is, it's a fantastic way to really get in there and really get a look and see the numbers and understand how decisions get made. And, you know, it's really easy to argue about abortion or tax policy or Donald Trump or things that get focused on on a national level. And, once you get into some of the some of the things that you're suggesting, fire boards, school boards, what have you, it's a lot less about what your personal R and D politics come from, and for at least for me, for the time that I've been on this budget committee, it's a lot more about what your priorities are and what you're really looking to do to serve and how you can provide those services in the most efficient manner. And there's, you know, decisions are made by those who show up, and if you're willing to take the time to be there, mm-hmm. you can really have an impact. I think the trick is getting there with that scarlet R. <laughs> but there's, there's also lots of other boards and agencies around or all th- over Oregon where you can volunteer and serve. I mean, mm-hmm. as an example, uh, I served on the board of Northwest Pilot Project, which is housing for the very poor and elderly in downtown Portland. And the Susan Emmons, who was the executive director, was terrific. She recently retired in the last couple of years, but she was terrific in that role. Served on the board of Campfire. Another area that I served on the board was the board of USA Swimming, where I served as surprisingly the treasurer. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. I never pegged you as a treasurer. <laughs> yeah, I know. Who knew? Uh, but also through my involvement as an example in swimming over the decades, because I swam all the way through college and still swim to this day. You swam all the way to Pennsylvania from here? Didn't go to, yeah, didn't go to, didn't swim to Pennsylvania. <laughs> but I'm, this year, I'll be, it's been 40 plus years I've been participating in the annual Labor Day uh, swim up at Hood River. Okay. Uh, or this year it's going to be at Cascade Locks where you go across the river on a, on the, uh, stern wheeler and then jump off the stern wheeler and swim back to the Oregon side. Wow. Yeah, okay. That's very cool. And then later this in, in July, uh, there's a couple events, uh, water related I'll be participating in here in Portland. There's the annual mayors or Ted Wheeler's swim across the Willamette. That's that guy, in July. That guy. Yep. <laughs> he's the mayor and he started this. I'm, you know, about, about just, I don't know, three or four hundred people participate in that. And 
you start over near where Omzi is and then jump in and swim across to the bowl uh, on the west side. And then in a couple of weeks, there's going to be the, uh, I think, fifth or sixth annual big float on the Willamette, where it's just to encourage people to take greater access to the river. And I'm looking forward to participating in that. That all sounds fun. And there's, I feel like Oregon, you get like nine nice weeks where you can do like water type stuff outdoors. <laughs> July 4th through like mid-September. This is, yeah. That's that's it. That's, that's it. all the yep. time. Every, yep. every other thing, you're going to be cold and rainy and it's just, it's not going to be great. So you're making the most of making the, the, most. Of the yeah. swim season. Although today was beautiful. Yeah. Today was nice. Today was really I, nice. I actually, I played tennis this morning and got rained on for a couple of seconds. And it's like, well, it's Oregon. This is what we signed up for. And uh-huh. then the sun came out and it was really nice. See, so. I had to work today. So I was <laughs> doing that. Sucker. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, what you're, what we're talking about here brings up sort of an interesting point is something that I firmly believe is that you start with the respect for and the dignity of the individual. Mm-hmm. And if you start at that point, you can work everything else out. And one thing that I think that we as Republicans and Democrats too, I mean, everybody, identity politics. Mm-hmm. For example, I'm a swimmer. I'm a college grad. I have postgraduate education. I'm a financial person. I'm tall. I'm a native Oregonian, second generation. All of those are different identities in my life. Which one is the most important? All of them and none of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can emphasize the fact that you know we start with the dignity of and the respect for the individual. And certainly nationwide, as Republicans, we have a lot of things through the history of the Republican Party that have done great things for people in this country. I mean, going back, you could start with Lincoln, where you had not only the land-grant colleges you know, for educational opportunity. You had the Transcontinental Railroad, which went through, which helped provide economic opportunity. You had the Homestead Act. Even conservation, I think it was under President Lincoln, where Yosemite became a national park. Hmm. Uh, certainly under President Theodore Roosevelt, with the ethics of conservation, did great things with that. You have the uh, efforts under, excuse me, President Eisenhower in terms of, again, economic opportunity through the interstate highway system that began under his presidency. You have President George H.W. Bush, where he described one of his finest legislative acts that he and Congress were able to accomplish was the American with Disabilities Act, providing opportunities for people. So there's a long history nationwide, and there's also a long history in Oregon of Republicans who have done things to make things better for all Oregonians. And that's something that we can be proud of that. Absolutely. I think that's a trap, though. I think going against identity politics, I think that Oregon, being as liberal as we are, has gone so far into the identity politics that if we come out as rejecting that, I think that's going to bite us. But the Democrats are taking it too far. They're so concerned with identity politics that they're almost entirely excluding white men, which isn't right either. Here's my prediction for 2020. You can hear it now on this podcast. Odds makers. Every Democrat for state legislature who is not an incumbent will be a woman or a minority. We saw a little bit of that in 2018, and I think it's going to go full bore in 2020. Well, and there was, there was some of that, certainly, uh, for both parties in 2018. But I still have to start with the premise of you start with the respect for and the dignity of each individual, yes. which acknowledges all of their identities. Right. I mean, we're not just simply one piece. And the, I gave the list of several things that are part of my identity, but not a single one of those parts can find me or define me. All of them define me. 
And I just to be clear, I don't mean that as being like a bad thing that they're running more women and minorities. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe white men have been running things too long. But I, I feel like as Republicans, if we reject that whole system, I think we're just going to get granite railroaded. Well, you certainly in history in this country, when it started out, it certainly was just white men and a number of other restrictions even within that category. And the progress that we've made in this country in the last 225 years or more uh, have been expanding, working to, if you will, fulfill the dream that's identified in the Declaration of Independence uh, and in the Constitution. And I think that's been a very good thing. But I think ultimately, end of the day, regardless of what the color of your skin is, which always needs to be, it needs to be acknowledged, uh, or regardless of what your ethnic background is, regardless of what your sex is or however you identify, you want to work the issue that's going to help people. Well, I, I agree with you in principle. I, I just think it, I don't know. We're in a weird spot in 2019. <laughs> Are you postulating that we as Republicans should also have fewer white male candidates and have look for more women, look for more minorities to, to run or to bring over into the party? So first of all, we are a very white male dominated party. There are not many minorities in particular and fewer women than on the Democrat side. I think we would do better to reach out to those communities. And yeah, I think if we ran more candidates, we would end up winning more. I've again, looked at the, a lot of this data of the nine women who ran against a man in 2018, eight of them won. Eight out of nine women won against a man when there was a man versus a woman. But was it nine Democrats? Like no, nine it was, Democrat it was uh, I think it was five Democrat and one and four Republican. I think we would do better if we reached out to those communities, ran more of those candidates. I think rejecting identity politics wholesale is a mistake. I think we have gotten to a point in 2019, Oregon, 2019, America, where we need to at least acknowledge it. And I think that we need to first and foremost look at people based on their qualities, based on who they are as people, that we judge them on their character, not based on the color of their skin, to quote Martin Luther King Jr. But wouldn't have known who said that. We <laughs> everybody okay. <laughs> I tend to explain things in this podcast because you never knew who was listening. Anyway. But you also have, I think, as you said, you have to acknowledge. You have to acknowledge, acknowledge it. Yes. It. Acknowledge the past and what has happened and how these, these groups have been historically marginalized. And well, I think, I don't think we can reject it wholesale. We need to at yeah, least well, acknowledge I mean, it. You look at in, in Oregon, which is where my primary interest is, uh, is that, I mean, you look at the, the state constitution when it started. I mean, Oregon basically said, we don't want to deal with African Americans, period. Yeah. If, if you know, we're not, those that say we're in favor, right? We just want to deal with it. Go away. Okay. That was wrong. That yeah. was wrong. Yeah. And it's taken a long time to just acknowledge that and then also move to take actions to address it. Agreed. Well, and I think I, I agree with you, which is, I think, going to disappoint some listeners because we, we get people <laughs> who comment on like on our Facebook who are just like, you guys just agree on everything. I want you guys to like go fight, like go disagree on something. And that's, and I, we someday we will, but it's we not. We thought we were going to have a disagreement with Jeff Reynolds until we. Yeah, just, he said it was going to be we, controversial. Like, I know. And then we ended up agreeing on most of the stuff. I know. It's like, anyway. come on, Jeff. But ahead, everybody's but, pleased that he's overcome his shyness. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> he definitely he's like, just so reserved. You can never get the guy to say more than three words. <laughs> um, so I, I agree with you that. That it would be beneficial to the Republican Party to, in so many words, look 
like the country as a whole because we don't right now. We are older and whiter and probably more well off than the country as a whole. And that's, we, you can't represent people if we don't, if we're not people, if we're just one subset of people. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a, you run into a chicken and an egg problem because we brought this wonderful person on our podcast and we just said, how can we get Republicans to run? And he just gave us a good list of reasons. And hopefully if there are some, minority or female or gay or any any type of non well-off white old male person who's listening to this podcast just says yeah i I agree with that i might consider running as a republican to some extent there's got to be it's got to be somebody who looks like you and me who let the the three people at this table are white guys i'm Mm. James is much older than I. Am. He's he's a geezer of the he's the geezer of the group. But I but someday we will be old white guys. Uh, it is not this day. But at at some point it needs to be an old white guy who gets up and says, "Look, I understand, uh, you know, I am who I am and I can't change that, but we have done wrong as a party and we need to do better at reaching out and, you know, saying some of the things that you just said and I just I think that that's a it's more than one, probably more than two or three or four election cycles between now and when we start getting taken seriously as a party as really actually trying to address this issue. Fair. Well, on that note, we are getting toward the end of the podcast. So we like to do at the end of every podcast, Jeff, is ask who is your favorite Republican in history or currently, however you want to do that. I mentioned several I mean, mm-hmm. certainly you have to start with President Lincoln, of course, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt, uh, President George H.W. Bush, President Eisenhower. It's the ones who worked hard and long to try to provide expanding opportunity for people. And not only expanding the opportunity, but saying, how do we make your life or your children's lives or your grandchildren's lives that they can see it's going to be better than what you had? Excellent. Four, four good ones right there. Oh, yeah. All old white men, I'll say. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's Condoleezza Rice. We can throw her in there. Yeah. Colin Powell was Colin pretty Powell, good. Colin Nothing. Powell was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you did, those kinds of, with those kinds of questions, you're right. It, it, <laughs> you, you, tend, you tend to go, you tend to go for the big figures in, in of history. Of course. And, but, I, and I just yeah. couldn't. No really, judgment. I couldn't, just, yeah. yeah, really yeah. not take the, the easy swing there. Making jokes. But no, but they, they are shining examples of who we could be on yeah. our party. I mean, I, certainly absolutely. locally here in Oregon, you have the example of Dave Fronmeyer, recently passed Norma Paulus, Mark Hatfield. Uh, there's a whole slew of uh, Republicans in this state that we can hold up as who have done great things for the people of the state. I think Tom McCall was a Repu- Republican too, wasn't he? Tom McCall sure was, was. Yes, he was. Yeah. 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 I mean, Half and, the city named after that guy. <laughs> Tom McCall Waterfront Park. And you know, he was certainly was probably one of the most prominent environmentalists uh, of his time. Yeah, and there's an interesting story where we—I I don't know if the story is true or not. If it—if it isn't true, it ought to be true that Governor McCall and subsequently Governor Straub, when they first ran against each other for governor, and ultimately, you know, Governor McCall, uh, Tom McCall won. But the story is that they used to go from city to city throughout the state, traveling together hmm. and talking over things as they traveled and. Check into the hotel and then go to the debate and then get back in the car together and go on to the next one. And I don't know if that story is true or not. If it isn't true, it ought to be true. Yeah. I've always thought that it'd just be a really cool way to do a campaign with two people who, who 
actually respect each other and have different views and see mm-hmm. things differently and will publicly discuss what their differences are and somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose but certainly for myself I would love to do that with uh Tobias Reed go throughout the state 10 15 20 different locations and we get up and we talk about the issues that we think are important and then take questions from the audience I would love to do that with him uh, in 2020 if I end up running there you go, Tobias. Right, if you're go. listening, if you're listening, <laughs> shameless <there's> plug. <laughs> Tobias Reed listens to Rashmore Republican. <laughs> Seriously, doubt that. All right. Well, anyway, I think we're at the end. So, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for asking. Of course. And listeners, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. And if you're feeling extra generous you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.